welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Welcome, welcome to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the Radical Math Talk podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you come back for future episodes and new content if you like what you see today. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, as always, I thank you and I welcome you back for this brand new episode. And I hope that you find today's episode one that is informative, enlightening, and, of course, insightful. So before we get into the main event and introduce our newest guest, if you're on YouTube, please make sure you hit that red subscribe button so you can get future notifications of new episodes. And if you're listening from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of those audio platforms, you you can subscribe there as well. Um, Also, there have been a lot of inquiries about how people can donate to help contribute to the growth of this platform. Uh, You can contribute through Cash App or Venmo. And if you're on Cash App, the handle will be money sign ID talk for Ed. And if you are on Venmo, the handle should be at Kwame SM. That's at symbol K-W-A-M-E-S-M. And then, of course, if you want to catch up on past episodes of this podcast, you can go to our official YouTube channel, which is under my name, Kwame Salfamensa, or you can go to the official Identity Talk website at identitytalk4educators.com. Thank you kindly. All right, y'all. So today's episode... We're going to be focusing on Latinx mathematicians. So I've had a lot of episodes focus on black mathematicians, black professors who teach math in academia. But I want to explore the history of Latinx mathematicians because it's personally something I don't know a whole lot about. And I'm interested in just learning what that looks like, not just historically, but also contemporarily. And we have a special guest who is a phenomenal mathematician. Um, I've had a chance to listen to a few episodes of the podcast that she co-hosts, which is called Mathematically Uncensored. If you're not listening to it, make sure you subscribe to that podcast. It is a phenomenal podcast, which will give you some great information about what math is like in the higher ed world. So uh, without further ado, 
I want to bring on Dr. Pamela Harris to the podcast to talk about her map journey and all of the cool projects she's working on currently. So let's bring Dr. Pamela on. Hello. Hello. Oh my gosh, it's so wonderful to be here. How are you? I'm hanging in here. Yes, but it's great to have you. Um, you are somebody who you know I've followed for a bit and I just love your vibe. I love how you advocate for math people and academia. I love how you're just unapologetic about that advocacy and what should happen in terms of equity and representation, um, particularly in the Latinx context. I just love what you do. So I'm honored to have you on. No, thank you so much. There's so much work to be done. So I'm always happy and eager to find new platforms, you know, to share that. Yes, absolutely. So let, let's dig right in because there's so much I want to cover with you. Now, in this first segment of the podcast, which I love to call the mathography, uh, this is all about you just sharing your personal journey in math. So it's basically a math autobiography. So I'm interested in learning from you how you first encountered math as a child, how you've grown to love math over the years from your K to 12 years through your college years and where you are now in higher ed. How has that love and interest for math evolved over time? So wherever you want to take the story or, or start it, you know, I'll give you the floor to do that. All right. Sounds good. Um, so I, I think about my journey in math and how it's been kind of put into chapters, maybe. Uh, so when I think about my math education and how I started thinking about math as a child, um, I have a lot of really fond memories of thinking about math with my dad. So my dad, you know, he didn't have the same opportunities when we think about education as I have, which is part of the reason why we moved to the United States. Um, but that's a story for another day. Um, but as a kid, he would always give me math problems. And his favorite one was having me memorize people's phone numbers. And so he would just start, okay, what's grandma's number? And then I would just say all the numbers that were grandma's number. And then I was like, okay, what about Auntie Letty, Uncle Roy? What happened to your tia Silvia? Like just every single uncle and auntie and cousin and, you know, extended family. He would just have me memorize all these numbers. And he was always just so proud that I could just recall all these digits. Um, and so for me, there was this like fun aspect to mathematics. But early on, it really was this idea of just like memorizing and being able to like recall very fast facts that he thought were important. Um, and then it took me later on as an adult to realize like how clever that was, because if I ever got lost, and I should say that I was one of these kids that would just kind of like walk away from my parents and like wandering into the street. Um, I mean, my mom multiple times had to run into the middle of the street because I was going to get hit. So it was on, it was like for a very good reason that my father would always have me memorize people's phone numbers. He was like, she'll be able to get a hold of someone when she gets lost. Um, and so that was kind of my early on experience in mathematics, just like early recall, you know, fast recall and, and memorization. And then there was a time where I started thinking more about, you know, moving on in my education, move, uh, thinking about math almost as a, as a set of skills that I was building. And so this is more like middle school, high school, you know, you would be taught all these algorithms. 
most of the time I didn't understand why anything worked, but I just knew that if I kind of knew the steps that I could figure out the answer. Um, and so th that wasn't as pleasant for me. Like I kind of lost my interest in mathematics because it just felt just so unmotivated. It just felt like somebody just kind of giving me a whole bunch of rules that I needed to believe and then, you know, just do with the thing, whatever it is I needed to do. The quadratic formula, you just memorize this formula, which again, I was good at. And then you plug and chug and whatever. But I never understood where the quadratic formula came from, how that even got formulated. And then I went to undergrad. So I started at a technical college, Milwaukee Area Technical School. And there I actually tested very low in my math skills because I had taken off some time with math. Like I was like, I'm never going to use math. I'm going to become an art teacher. That's really what I wanted to do when I started uh, college. And my math skills just deteriorated again because I never actually knew why anything worked the way that it did. Like I could recall stuff. Like I was like, I know what the quadratic formula was, but I just didn't know really the rhyme or reason behind it. So I started from the bottom again. Like I had to figure out why numbers multiplied and added to something different. Um, and I talk about this in a lot of platforms because I've become a, you know, you, you said a great mathematician, um, but it's taken me this idea of perseverance. And so that kind of became my, my, you know, chapter where all of a sudden I really wanted to think about why things worked the way they did. And what was it about mathematics that was like continuing to pull me in and how it was so intriguing and how there was so much more to it than just the surface computations and just memorization. And then I pursued further mathematics. So I finished my, my um, associate degrees. I moved to pursue a bachelor's degree at Marquette University. And there I started learning how to write proofs, like mathematical proofs that without a doubt show that something is true. And all of a sudden it felt like I was in an art classroom. Like I got to be creative. I got to think about how something implies something else, which then implies something else. And the way that logical statements kind of follow. And so that's been sort of the, the new chapter and the world that I currently live in. Like what makes mathematics be true? That's what I'm after, the truth. Wow. And I see so many parallels between your journey and my journey. Um, just like many of us, you know, in our generation, you know, we grew up in an era where it was just all about that procedural fluency. It was just all about here, get this algorithm. If you plug this number here and there, you're going to spit out the right answer every time. There was never a focus on that conceptual aspect of mathematics, right. the why. Like, why does this algorithm make sense? Why are we doing this step in order to get right. to this next step? And we weren't given the agency at that time to question our teachers or to interrogate the deeper right. nature of the discipline. And I think, and maybe this was the case for you, I honestly think that's what attributed to my struggles with math during my undergrad because I was a math major and um, when I was in school and I took all the classes. I took all the calculuses. Mm -hmm. I took the linear algebra, the number theory courses, differential calculus. I mean, you name it. I was deep yeah. in that, in the math curriculum. And I found myself struggling in courses that were considered more abstract, 
more focused mm-hmm. on proving conjectures and theorems because it wasn't about getting to an answer. It was really just about making sense of theorems and That's proving right. and disproving whether it's true or not, which you are very familiar with because you teach a lot of these courses now. I- I'm I'm wondering from your end, because it really beat, beat up my confidence going yeah. through my undergrad and feeling like I wasn't as good of a math student as I was. What allowed you to sustain your love and for it? And how were you able to persevere through that time? I'm curious. I No, this is such a good question because I, I think I'm still struggling with that. I mean, just being 100% honest with you, I don't think that sense of maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm, I'm never going to answer this question. You know, maybe I don't have what it takes to be a great mathematician. That's something that I think I will struggle with my entire life. The thing that has changed is the way that I think about myself, right? And so there's this concept in math education and in education in general about moving from having a fixed mindset, which is we just have this amount of capacity to understand things. And that's just how intelligent I am. I'll never be able to get smarter versus this idea of growth mindset, which is if I work hard enough at it, of course I will improve. And so I think perseverance is tied with how we believe, our our beliefs about our own abilities. And so I've been working so much on trying to fight that, you know, that initial reaction of, oh, this is hard, I'm not gonna be able to solve it, to, oh, this is is hard. Like there's something fun happening here that I just don't understand yet. And I think I I fool myself a lot of the times. Like I'll start like panic, panic, panic. I don't know how to solve this problem to, oh, this is really exciting. I don't know how to solve this problem. And that's where you actually show up, right? Like you show up and you do the work when it is really hard. And that's, that's what it takes to persevere. And I think we all do it in a variety of aspects in our lives, right? Whether that's, you know, you cook and you make a meal and maybe it's really salty the first time you make it. That doesn't mean you're right. never going to make meatloaf again. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yeah. like you again <laughs> until you get the proportion of the ingredients correct. Um, and so I think just not getting so into our own belief about our self-worth being tied to our ability to do math fast and accurately the first time, I think that changes the more you practice math and the more you extend grace to yourself. Like you're not supposed to be perfect at everything you do the first time you do it. Give yourself grace and then just stay with it because there is something really fun that's gonna happen at the end, which is this like bright moment where you understand deeply why something is working the way that it does. Nah, so true. And when you were at Marquette, because we're talking Wisconsin, right? That's right. That's my home state. Now, I'm not sure what the demographics were as far as, you know, Latinx or Hispanic people in that area. Right. But I can imagine when you were stepping foot in all of your math courses, particularly during your undergrad, were you that student looking for another... Latinx mm. or Hispanic person as a classmate, and you're like, okay, am I the only one here? Yes. You know, because I know for me, I was doing that because I was usually either the only black person mm-hmm. in my math courses or one of the few. And I would always try to befriend the closest black person <laughs> in every yeah. class, you know, just to motivate myself and just say, hey, 
you know, you know how they feel about us. You see how they perceive us in terms of our math ability. We got to prove them wrong. Yeah. So, you know, let's um, collaborate and get through this class together. So I'm wondering if there was a similar drive in your case. Yeah, absolutely. I think when I first stepped foot into Marquette, because having gone to the community college, there the group of students were super diverse, coming from all types of backgrounds, but also at all ages. You know, usually community colleges are sort of this community of, you know, sometimes people that don't immediately can go to a four-year institution, let alone a private Jesuit college like Marquette. Um, and so I was very used to just never feeling like I had to look around to find people that looked like me or who had similar interests. Like we were all in it together. But I do remember vividly the first time that I, I, I walked into a classroom and there maybe I didn't notice because I was like so excited. It was my first class. But you know where it hit me real hard? The second I exited that building and I had to like walk to another class, the mm. sea of white faces everywhere. And, and it looked like we were little, you know, ants walking from, you know, these little, these little kind of hallways. And I was just like, there, there's no black people here. There's no Latinx people here. Like, it's just me. And I was like, I'm going to go hide in the library. So like, I was wow. so uncomfortable. And that wasn't even a math class. I was like, I had to take some theology class, you know, on the other side of campus. Once I got to my math class, I was like, it's going to be okay, because this is math. And then it was like, oof, I'm taking a class with nothing but engineers. And they're all, there were all men, maybe with the exception of me and somebody else, at, you know, at a class of 20. And there, there was zero diversity. It was all white people. And that experience pretty much stayed with me the, the semesters that I was at Marquette. And I think for me, what was so difficult was anytime that I did make a mistake, anytime that I thought, oh, you know, they're not going to, they're going to assume that I don't know the answer. Like it is because either I'm a woman or I'm Latina. And that part hung with me for a long time. Like I just didn't know people. And to be honest, you know, I mean, I'm old, but not that old. Like I could have Googled and I could have been like Latinos in math, you know, and like found out about Ruth Gonzalez, who was the first woman who got a PhD in the United States, who was Latina. Um, but we're talking about like, you know, in the 80s, like this woman got her PhD in the 80s, my friend, like that, that was in my lifetime. Yeah, that's you know, not that long ago. Like, she alive. She out She's in alive. the world. And she's the first Latina, you know, U.S. born Latina to get a Ph.D. in math. And so that blows my mind because it has sh it, it basically it tells me that the history of Latinos in the United States in mathematics, we're living it like right now. This is the time where this history is being made. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it makes me sad. But it also gives me a lot of hope that having these conversations, when teachers listen to this and they see a little Latina student, a little Latino student in their classroom, that they can think of somebody like Ruth Gonzalez, somebody like me, somebody like, you know, and, and I'm going to pitch this book, you know, you know, with tons of Latinx mathematicians so that they have role models so that they recognize that, like, we exist. We're out here grinding, doing all the math of all types of math, and that we share in that culture and that heritage. 
Um, but no, no, very much like you. I was sitting in that classroom and I was like, it's just me. It's just me. It's just me. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. But we're good. We're definitely going to talk about uh, testimonials. We have to uh, because that's just an awesome project. And I know how much work was put into it by you and the many other contributing authors um, who took part in the project. But uh, before we get to that, I do want to move on to our next segment, which is show your work. A popular phrase that we use in the math world. Mm -hmm. Um, Students come up to us with work to grade. Yes. They have the answers, but there's no evidence, no modeling of their thinking. Mm -hmm. And we look at it and we're just like, I sis, I bro, you gotta show your work. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I That's right. How you're thinking about this? I'm not saying that you're cheating or anything like that, but I gotta know that you truly understand this concept and the skill that you're being taught. So show me the steps that you took. Show me how you got here, your path. And in this context, uh, for this mm-hmm. podcast, when we say show your work. The work in this sense is the receipts. And mm. you got receipts. I got so a lot of receipts. <laughs> um, and I know, you know, you're pretty humble, but we gotta give you flowers in this segment. Cause I want you to have a chance to just share a lot of this work that you're doing. So testimonials being one of those projects, but listen, you out here podcasting, you know, mm-hmm. you even have um an organization that is focused on amplifying Latinx mathematicians. That's right. Like, we got to talk about all that. But I want to just stick with your journey in academia because I think that's very <laughs> important. There are probably Latinx listeners and viewers right now wondering, how can I get to that same position that Dr. Pamela Harris is in right now, teaching right. young people in college because we need to hear these counter stories. We need to hear these counter narratives, particularly in a math education space. So um, I want to know, did that trauma that you experienced as an undergrad propel your journey of wanting to become a professor? Mm. I'm going to be real for you. It was the love of math. Mm. I think the, the, had I listened to that trauma of like, there's no people that look like me that are are in higher academia, I might've never gone on to get a master's and a PhD in mathematics. Really what was the driving force was just how much I loved mathematics. Like I was not done learning. And having had a, a really wonderful professor for real analysis when I was an undergraduate. So, you know, she, she basically, so Rebecca Sanders told me, Oh, when you go to graduate school, you'll learn these concepts more deeply. And and that stuck with me. I was like, when I go, her default assumption for me actually was that I was talented and that I could do this and that I should go on and get a PhD. What changed my life was that comment and the, the information that I now share widely, which is once you finish an undergraduate degree, a master's and a PhD in mathematics are free in the sense that you don't have to pay tuition to go get these masters and PhDs. Usually you're supported as a teacher. Listen, you let me know when you're ready to come over here to UW-Milwaukee and we get you this this PhD, okay? We get you this PhD. And what I mean is 
you are often hired as a teaching assistant. What that means is that the university commits to paying your tuition for the classes that you take. They commit to giving you a stipend. Now, we're not going to get wealthy off of that stipend, but you are going to get this PhD. And then what you do in exchange for that. Oh, and also you get benefits. So, you know, maybe not world class benefits, but enough benefits that if, you know, you break a leg, you don't have to worry about, you know, selling the kidney to pay for the broken leg. But what happens is you teach a class or two courses during the year for them. And these are courses like intermediate algebra. I taught that as a graduate student. So I had my little class. I showed up with my book and I told them how to solve, you know, linear equations, quadratic equations, how you graph a parabola. Like I taught them those things. And then you go and you do your own work. And so going on to get a, a, you know, a PhD is a job. You, you can go and do it as a job, make a living. Again, you don't get wealthy, but you can survive. You do that for five, six years, and then you leave with your PhD at hand. So she said this to me and I thought, okay, all right, well, I'll be all by myself and I'll still be the only woman maybe. And maybe I'll also still be the only Latina, but I'm going to go get this PhD. And then when I showed up to graduate school, I was really lucky that, you know, I had my family. Um, you know, I grew up in, in Milwaukee and my mom was here. My dad was here. My brother, my sister, my entire extended family were here. And so I was able to go to a graduate program, but still have all of the support that I needed at home. And so as much as I did, still didn't know anything about Ruth Gonzalez or anybody else for that matter, I was able to just focus on what I loved, which was just like really thinking deeply about mathematics. And so that's what got me through. Cause you gotta love this subject to spend five years working at it, you know, after Absolutely. you already did four or five years of undergrad. Yes, for sure, for sure. And speaking of uh, that doctoral journey, I imagine there had to have been some challenges and yes. definitely some successes. Um, some of those two, you know, and when we talk about diversity and, and representation in that space, it's still something that we're talking about to this day. You don't see a whole lot of people mm-hmm. of color That's right. in general pursuing advanced degrees in mathematics, although that's slowly changing. Mm-hmm. But what I would love for you to share is what that journey was like getting that doctorate degree from the time that you put your thesis out there to the time that you're working on the dissertation, defending it, all that. What were those ups and downs like for you during that journey, you know, being Latina, you know, in academia? Yeah, absolutely. I can tell you about that. So let me say that I, as, as well prepared as I thought I was, when I was an undergraduate, you know, I was I was getting some A's in these math classes. You know, I was working. I was working. I show up to graduate school and the pace of a mathematics class in graduate school is wild. You show up, you know, to your undergrad class and maybe you cover one to two sections in a book. And you're like, okay, I spent a few hours doing my work problems, checking in the back, like I'm good. You show up to graduate school, they give you first off a book that's unreadable. Okay, the author of that book wrote that book for themselves. They did not write that book to share anything with anybody else. So Mm -hmm. I would stare at this book and I would read the same sentence like five times and not understand it. And then the professor is in the classroom 
probably don't even look at me in my face, just like gets there, chalk on hand, seven boards written down, theorems numbered with letters and numbers, and we're going through the alphabet, how much he's covered. And I just remember like going to my office, because you get a little office, and just looking at the book and looking at my notes and looking at the problems, and I didn't even know where to start. And so what happened for me, there was this, this change and okay, this is very different. This is not what I'm used to. How am I going to be successful in this new space? Right. And, you know, and then I have to take these, you take a year long course in real analysis, in abstract algebra, and then two other courses to your liking. So you're only taking three classes a semester as a graduate student. You know, okay. when you're used to five or six as an undergrad, so you think you're going to show up and you're going to be just fine. And like I said, it was like a semi hit me hard. <laughs> so you take these courses and then at the end of the course, you have to take what's called your master's exams. So basically you prove to the department that you know the content well enough to earn your master's degree. And let me tell you that that first year I studied, I thought I studied, like I said, I didn't really know what was going on. I was playing catch up. May came around, I take, I, I passed the classes. So I think I'm ready to take this master's exam. Oh, sure. wrong. I failed, flat, failed, failed, embarrassingly. You're giving this exam, you have three hours to take it. I don't think I knew how to do any problem on the list. So it took me adapting, right? Like asking people, how do I study for this exam? You know, because I've been looking at my notes and I took the final and I did well, but like, how come I can't pass this exam? And then you start learning what I like to call the hidden menu of academia, mm. right? The secret menu. It. Okay. Listen, nobody done told me that the office had copies of all of these exams dating back to like 1850. So what you had to do was not study from your book, not study from your notes, not study from the homework you were taking. You were supposed to just magically know that you should go to this little file in the main office, pull out the file, look at the last 10 exams, make copies and practice as if you are taking the exam. And then after three hours pass, you like check and you're like, okay, I still don't know how to do these kinds of convergence sequence type of stuff. Okay, let me go back to my book now and see what content I need to learn there. So I just did not know how to study. I did not know how one prepares for these kinds of exams. But that gave me a really good life lesson that no matter where I am, no matter what it is that I'm doing, first off, I'm going to fail some things and that's okay. The second thing is when I fail, the important thing is do you dust yourself off and try again, but you do so much smarter than you did the first time, which is ask for help. So you better believe that now that I knew I was failing those exams, I wasn't going to take both of them at the same time. I was going to take and practice for one, study in this new way, see if that pays off. If I pass that exam, then I iterate that process for the next one. And so that's what I did. You know, I studied now for the algebra one and I passed it at the end of the summer. And then I studied during the fall semester. And then during the winter term, I took my analysis one and passed it. It also mattered who writes the exams. So I started asking around, who writes the exams? Um, is it better to wait for so-and-so to write the exam versus this other professor? And everyone's like, oh yeah, if you take it with Professor A, 
never going to pass. No one passes those exams. But if you wait until this other professor writes it, all of a sudden you'll be good because they wow. are more in line with the content of the course. So I'm telling you these secret things, these behind the scenes happenings, you got to get to know people. It makes a difference. That's how you find out all this stuff. And you got to just be unafraid to ask questions. But that's, wow. you know, that's part of it. So I can keep telling you about it, but that secret manual blew my mind. Yeah. But that right there is a small example of the difference between schooling and education right there. That's right. And and you mentioned something earlier about how you didn't realize there was a whole archive library of no past tests from previous years. Now, I would imagine that if you had a network that you were mm -hmm. a part of that shared information, because we hear about gatekeeping tactics and the whole the politics of yes. academia. I hear about it. I'm not in that space, but I've interviewed enough professors of color, particularly mm -hmm. women professors of color, who have told me some of these um, stories. And I'm, I'm just wondering, did you have to find your community during that time so you all can share this information together? Because you knew that you weren't going to get it from certain folks within that space. You, you catch my oh, drift. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. And luckily for me, one of the things that really connected me to other people was the fact that I, I had a kid. So it's actually really surprising and something that I really love about having gone to UW-Milwaukee as a graduate student. There was plenty of graduate students who had children. And so that connected folks. So there was another student who also had, you know, she had a son and I have a daughter and they were about the same age when we were in school. And so we connected over that. But even, even aside from sort of the parents groups that were on, you know, in our department, people were and continue to be just really friendly. So let me just say that this was not because there was like other students who were hiding out, you know, with the with all the exams, not sharing. None of us knew. Like, that's just what it was. Nobody told us that these exams were there. You know, the, that, shame to the professors. They didn't do it on purpose, probably. They just thought we probably knew, but we didn't. Um, but having that sense of community, like once we all kind of knew, like, listen, we got to help each other because this material is hard. And I'll focus on some of the algebra. You do some of the analysis. Let's teach each other. All of a sudden, that changed my entire experience in graduate school. Like having that core group of friends that we knew we were going to, you know, either we were all going to fail or we were all going to pass because this wasn't a zero sum game. This wasn't, you know, I succeed and then this other student fails. That's not how it was for us. And, and that can look very different depending on the graduate program. But I just got really lucky that my cohort of you know friends, like we really did support each other. And many of us didn't continue to the PhD program. In fact, out of you know the 12 or 13 or so of us that started that year, in fact, I was the only one that completed the PhD. Most of that was just for personal reasons. Some people had their own thing going on. They wanted to finish their master's and get out. Some people finish their master's and then they return back to Europe, right? Like there was a, a wide variety of reasons why they didn't finish. But for me, again, the thing that kept me in math was always my love for math. And I thought, I'm not ready to go. Like, I've only been a graduate student for two years. I can stay here longer. I'm going to get this PhD. And so that's what I did. I, I Having my community, my network there, I was just like, I'm ready. Let's just keep going. And so I 
was really lucky to be able to have my PhD advisor. So Jeb Wollenbring, he's always been super supportive to this day of everything that I do. Um, and he gave me a problem that, you know, I graduated in 2012 with my PhD. I started working on the problem he gave me about 2008. I still work on this problem. So that, <laughs> that's wild, right? Like I've published numerous of papers on my PhD dissertation. But what that means to me is that he gave me a problem that's going to sustain me mathematically my whole life. Um, and so for me, it just feels like a tree that that keeps on growing and, and blooming. Um, and so that part has been really just life changing. I didn't understand that a PhD is just a part of your mathematical journey. It doesn't mark the end of it. It really is just the beginning. So, so now I have a question to ask you about productive struggle, because mm -hmm. when I think about PhD students, particularly in math, you're given most, in most cases, you're trying to crack theorems that have mm -hmm. existed for centuries. Right. And I've seen people sacrifice their own mental health and, and wellness mm. just to crack that theorem mm -hmm. or to discover something that's never been discovered before because that's just mm -hmm. groundbreaking in our space. Yeah. So I, I'm just wondering, um, like, how are you able to strike that balance? So when you're trying to crack that problem, is there is there something in your mind that tells you, okay, I'm going to just step away for a little bit so I can maintain my sanity and then I'm going to come back and try to solve mm -hmm. this problem? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and let me just say that, you know, I, I struggled a lot with my mental health during the final years of my PhD. Mm. And I don't know that it was solely due to the math. Um, okay. And it, it wasn't solely due to my own personal challenges that I was experiencing at the time. I think it was really the combination of them. You know, working to get a PhD requires a level of intensity academic intensity that is really unlike anything else in the world. I mean, it's a PhD. There's a reason why it is a terminal degree, right? It's like the highest of the highest kind of thinking that you need to employ. And the time commitment needed, you know, it's, it's really intense. So if you add to that additional challenges that you might be facing, if you're a mom, if you, you know, your parent, whatever, um, it can compound all of that. And, mm -hmm. you know, my, my PhD advisor once gave me because my, my life was kind of at a hard spot. Like I, I had had this baby, you know, my husband actually had been in Iraq during the time that I started graduate school, he, he's a Marine. And so I was doing all of the things that I wanted to do, you know, in terms of mathematics, but at the same time, like raising a child with a husband who's in the military is really hard. And I remember my PhD advisor at some point, Jeb said to me, you know, use mathematics as an escape. Uh, for your like every day to day type of challenges. And I, you know, and I've talked to Jeb about this and I was like, that at the moment hit me so hard because I was like, you don't get it. You don't get what this is like. And then I thought, well, you know what? Every piece of advice he had given me had been sound. And I thought maybe because of how stressed I am and all the things I'm feeling, like I don't see how maybe that could be helpful. And so I did, I dug deep and I was like, I can't control 
what's happening to my husband. Like, I don't know if he's dead or alive, but like, right. and, and I can't control, you know, what's going to happen with my family. But what I can control is me learning how to prove the monotone convergence theorem. And so all of a sudden for me, and I'm not saying this is good. You know, I'm just saying that there were, there have been points in my life where things are very difficult and mathematics, again, it's a huge privilege to say this. And I sit deep in this privilege has given me a way to hide, to hide from the reality of being a woman, a Latina, a mother, you know, a wife, a person who experiences painful life journeys. Um, math is an escape from all of that. It's like this playground in my brain that I control, that I can spend, you know, seven hours until my body's like, okay, get up, girl, you know, like you gotta go to the bathroom. But like, I could just sit there and play in this playground um, and no one can take that from me. And so there's something so beautiful amidst this kind of chaotic time in my life that I've been able to, to reflect on. Um, but again, like my mental health was bad and I was able in a very weird way to use math as a way to cope with a lot of the challenges that I was experiencing. Um, but I also think it's really important for us to, you know, talk about like, I, I then started therapy and that was really helpful. And it also mm. helped me find new ways to cope, right? So that it wasn't always math because imagine that was working because the math was going well. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, if I'm struggling in everything else in my life, but the math is going well, that's giving me what I was needing, what I was looking for. And, you know, through many years of therapy and a variety of meds, like I figured out that there's going to be times where the math is not going to flow. And what am I going to use then? What are going to be my coping strategies when what is difficult it, the, the, and the thing that gives me so much joy, like if it's that's not there, who am I? And so there's been like this change in me, which is I'm not the math that I do. Right. I am a person with goals and values and ambitions beyond mathematics. And mathematics for me has always been a way to communicate with other people. It's been right. because really I like deeply down in me, like I love getting to know other people and their stories and who they are. And so mathematics is just a way to do that. Nice, nice. And your story is a story that I'm sure you've heard other people share. And this segues into this current project that uh, you worked on with some contributing authors uh, called Testimonials. So it's just stories from different Latinx uh, mathematicians who are, I'm assuming, are they all in the higher ed space or they're in just different disciplines? They're, they're all in higher ed of and do math research or math education research. All right. So I'd love for you to just share um, about testimonials, the project, and just how that came about. Yeah, absolutely. So it really started um, hilariously. We had a meeting. So we meaning, um, so Alicia Prieto Langarica myself, and then we also had Vanessa Rivera-Quinones, Rosaura Uscanga-Lomeli, uh, Luis Sordoviera, and then Andres, um, I'm forgetting his middle name, and Andres Vindas Melendez. Um, we were together because we were working on projects related to Latinos and Hispanics in the mathematical sciences, the organization um, which some of us co-founded. And one of our projects 
starts, you know, always in September 15th to October 15th, which is a Hispanic Heritage Month calendar where we uncover a mathematician a day. Um, so check out our website, latisons.org. But that year, right before pandemic hit, 2020, February, we have a meeting and Alicia and I had had this conversation about how wonderful it would be if we had a book that really shares the personal stories, the narrative, you know, what we were just talking about, my own experiences to getting this PhD. Because a lot of what we feature on the website is really amplifying the, the where they're at now, right? All of their awards, all of their accolades, their grants, all of these things, their promotions. But we were kind of missing that personal touch. Like, what was it like when they were little kids? Did their dad also make them memorize everybody's phone number? Those kinds of stories were nowhere to be read or heard or found. And what we realized is that there was no book that contained this. Our stories, like I said, the history of being Latinx in math and being raised or born in the U.S., that, that's happening right now. And so we thought, well, why don't we just reach out to some of the mathematicians we know and ask them to basically share with us their testimony. And so that's what we did. So during the entire time in pandemic, we worked for about 18 months with our authors. And so they, we gave them some questions to think about, you know, content that they might include in their chapter. And then we had, you know, one of our, one of our authors, uh, James um, Mendoza, he, Alvarez Mendoza, he gave us his chapter right away. Like it just, I don't know, it must have flown out, like flew out of him, you know, just like he just had it to share. And it was just so beautiful and pointed that we were able to ask with his permission to actually share with the other authors. Because in it, he talks about, you know, his mother, like the story of his mother going to school and what that was like. And then he talks about her becoming a teacher. And he has the picture of him during her, you know, class photo. And he's like standing there as a little kid behind her skirt and how he was in the classroom when he's teaching, when she's teaching her students math. And like, he is falling in love with the subject, hearing his mother teach it to other children. And so all, all of that just made us so happy. You know, and we took that chapter, we shared it with the other contributors and they just came with it. The stories that they share about their family, their journeys, their struggles, their successes, um, are something that I think I, I don't take lightly. Like I feel so incredibly honored that they were willing to, to write these chapters and to share with us because uh, there were authors that actually told us, you know, it's too painful. It's too painful to tell my story. And so they, they weren't able to contribute because, you know, of, of their own feeling about it. And so I'm just so honored to, to live in this time that I was able to, to help and be a part of that project. And that's a major reason why I had to start this podcast because there are so many math podcasts out there that focus on just the pure aspect of it, you know, the mm -hmm. numbers, the equations, the algorithms, the graphs, right. all those things, which we all love. But mm -hmm. we don't talk enough about the mindset That's right. of a math learner. You know, you mentioned fixed mindset earlier mm -hmm. um, in this conversation. 
And that's a lot of our learners who come into our classrooms. They believe that innately they just are never going to be good at math. And then there's some who mm -hmm. believe that they've always been good at math because from the moment they came out their mother's womb, that's just how they've been. You know, they, mm -hmm. they believe mm -hmm. that. They're conditioned to believe that. Uh, but we need to hear these stories because I always felt like the greatest remedy to math anxiety sometimes is just seeing a problem mm -hmm. get be right. Mm -hmm. Just getting a problem right yeah. might be the greatest remedy sometimes. It's not even just it's not even about an intervention or going mm -hmm. through a series of tests. Sometimes it's just having somebody invest in you, having somebody believe mm -hmm. in you so that you have the confidence to try this math problem out and to Absolutely. keep on trying to see get it right. And if we can hear more stories about those triumphs, but also some of those challenges, then we can really combat the perfectionism that is so attached oh, yeah. to mathematics. Like this, this whole idea of you know, okay, we need to solve these problems with these prescribed methods and mm -hmm. and procedures. And if you deviate from that, there's a problem there. Like, no, let's let's just talk about how sometimes that journey can be messy for us because we don't talk about the messiness enough. Absolutely. We don't. And math is messy. It's yes. absolutely, I mean, people are messy. You know what I'm saying? And it's people doing math. <laughs> Oh, that's a whole yeah, nother yeah, episode right there. For sure. Shoot, messy people. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a new podcast. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's something that's so important. Now, I do want to talk about latisms mm -hmm. and, and just how that got started. Um, obviously, there is a need to amplify Latinx map petitions, not just in higher ed, but just throughout because yeah. we need to hear these counter stories, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to get your take on what you feel the current state of Latinx representation is in math education, whether we're talking K to 12 or even just in academia. You know, what are your thoughts on that currently? Yeah, I, I can tell you a little bit about founding and then we can talk about this question because I think it's super important. Um, yes. So Latisums actually started from us trying to find our people, right? So um, Alicia Prieto Langarica, myself, Gabriel Sosa, and Alexander Diaz Lopez, all mathematicians of Latinx descent, um, we were having a conversation trying to figure out how do we find out who are all the Latinx mathematicians? Where are they? Who are they? What are their stories? And we posted on social media. Does anybody know any information about where we have a list of all of our mathematicians in this country and where are the Latinx ones? And, you know, people were saying, well, you know, the, the National Association for Mathematicians has a list of mathematicians um, who are Black or African-American. You can check that out. And we were like, OK, yes, but like, where's the Latinx folks at? And there was nothing. There was maybe a few listed under um, SACNA. So SACNA stands for the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science. They, at some point in the early 2000s, had started a 
biography project of scientists who identify as Latinx or Native American. And, but there's like two mathematicians among the entire list of their autobiographies. And we were like, okay, great. So we got two out there somewhere in the, you know, world. And then we thought, well, listen, it's, you know, it was like May, June timeframe. We were like, we know enough people, like let's start putting together our own list. And that's literally how Latisum started. We got together and we were like, okay, here are mathematicians I know who are Latinx. What mathematicians do you know? And we compiled a list that was long enough for the first two years of the Hispanic Heritage Month calendar that we put out. So that was 2016 and 17. And then we were like, okay, well, there's got to be more than 62 people. Where are the rest? And then we just started scouring the internet. We asked people to send us names of people. Where were the young people? Where were they? The ones that were currently working on getting their degrees, the ones that were just starting out as professors, we wanted to highlight them too. And so it's sort of taken a life of its own. Now people reach out to us to tell us about these mathematicians. And so we've kept that going. And the idea is that, yes, we are not a huge group of mathematicians. I should just be very frank with you, right? We're going to get to a point where it's going to be very, very difficult to find PhD Latinx mathematicians, and in particular, those who were born or raised in the United States. Because the number of PhD graduates that get a PhD in mathematics, we're talking about 1,800 people around that number every year, 1,800. Let me tell you about the year I graduated. So in 2012, of the 1,800 or so, there was only 11 women who got a PhD in math that were Latinx. And what? these were domestic. Yes, 11. That's it. And, and in fact, I, I don't know them. Like, I know some that graduated. Alicia Prieto Langarica was one of them. We graduated the same year. And we found each other by complete, complete accident being at the same conference one year, right? She works in mathematical biology. I work in algebraic combinatorics. Like our research couldn't be further apart from each other, but we found each other at a conference. And so what I'm saying to you is like, if we're having maybe 20, 30 folks, you know, if, if, if we're only on a gender binary, that unfortunately that's how NSF currently does that. Um, we're, t we're talking about 30, 30 people of Latinx descent that get a PhD in math. And again, that includes, you know, if you have somebody who was born in Latin America and educated in Latin America and then comes to the United States to get a PhD, you know, that's a very different experience. And, mm -hmm. and, but again, when you show up all of a sudden, you know, people are going to assume that you're there to clean the bathroom, you know, that's, that's a shock. And so we want you to come and because we'll we'll be there with you and be like, yeah, we know what that's like. And I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, and so the experience is, is different, but we're united by the way that people assume things about us and this deficit mindset. And so what we've been trying to do is fight that as actively as we can by just continuing to put out all of the work and feature and amplify all of the work that our Latinx mathematicians are doing in this country. Yes. And it's great work, I might add. It's Thank great you. Work. Thank you. I appreciate and, that. Yes. And outside of the founding of Latisms, you podcast too, just like I do. So <laughs> That's right. You have the um the Mathematically Uncensored podcast, which you co-host. Yes. Um, with uh Dr. Wenger. So shout yes. out to him. 
And it's a great podcast, y'all. Y'all got to check it out. Y'all definitely got to check it out. But I'm interested in knowing what makes Mathematically Uncensored, and I know the title kind of gives it away, different from other traditional math podcasts out there in your mind. What's so special about you? I mean, podcast? our tagline, you know, is, is our talk is real and complex, but never discreet. And so mm. we, we come with it. You know, we are, because we love mathematics, we want to share what it's like to be a person of color in this discipline. Not to scare other people of color from joining and, you know, being part of our community, not at all. But I, I think it would be a disservice if we don't actually talk about the challenges that we face. But also to highlight the joy that we experience in mathematics and the stories and the happenings in the community and how that affects us. And I think there is no other platform where people have that. You know, we do it. We're we're constantly having these conversations. Let me just be real. Um, you know, in the you know in the hallway where nobody's looking. Like, did that, did that person say what they said at this meeting? Like, did did they hear themselves? That was really racist. Okay, so we have those conversations, and what we're doing is we're kind of pulling the curtains back. You know, Eris and I are having conversations that we normally would have in private, and we're just making them public. And then we also have people who send us things to discuss, experiences that they've faced as a person of color in the mathematical sciences, and for us to discuss these. And then those episodes get shared with people that might benefit from hearing these things. Um, so just to give you an example, you know, there was there was something that happened to Ares this past season um, where he's at a meeting and somebody basically just belittles him, assuming that he's this, you know, you know student basically this like fresh out of PhD graduate student he must clearly not know what he's doing with his life rather than this man is extremely accomplished has an accolades galore runs you know he's the executive director for the National Association of Mathematicians but he's demeaned in this public meeting and none of the people who are on the call actually say anything they don't say, you know what, what you're saying right now, sir, is very inappropriate. Eris knows what he's doing with his life. No one says a thing, but wow. we know what happens. We know what happens. The emails start, you know, Eris begins to get all these emails. Oh, I'm sorry. That was so inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Right. And now all of a sudden Eris has to spend the time replying to these people who didn't come to his defense when they saw something was not okay. And, and how do you handle that? And let's, you know, that, that happens to all people of color, especially in scientific fields where people think they know who you are based on how you look. And so having these conversations and again, pulling the curtain and just saying like, listen, these are our experiences. This is the reality of what happens when we show up to your committee meetings, right? So how do we combat that if we're not having that conversation? And so our hope is that by sharing these stories, by sharing some of the things that happened to us, that happened to other people that we know, that other people will start thinking about acting better and making it so that the experience that we have is not one of trauma that makes us leave mathematics, but instead one of joy that keeps us engaged in this community. Mm. And what you all are doing is very bold because for those who aren't really familiar with how academia works, and I mean, I know a little bit about it just from mm -hmm. interviews I've done, 
I know there's been a debate about, you know, whether public scholarships should be considered right. as part of the criteria for tenure if you're trying mm-hmm. to be on track to be a full professor, whether you're at a research one, research two university, doesn't matter. There's this debate that's out there. And I've had friends who are in that space get ridiculed, whether it's through social media or through some of their colleagues in their universities because of some of the things that they say in those forums. Right. So I'm wondering like when you decided to start this podcast, did those thoughts run through your mind of, man, I might be putting my my track to, you know, a full professorship at risk. You know, this might mess up my tenure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's it, it even stems beyond that. Okay. Yes, the professional career might not go as well as one expects because of things that I say on the podcast. People might hold on to any single thing that I say. They might even pull it out of context and use it against me. And and that is a reality that I I live with. And and I am afraid. I'm I'm human. And there's going to be times where I also make mistakes. The thing that I say is maybe not the way that I wanted to articulate it. Or also, maybe I just no longer believe the thing that I said two years ago. And so it's. I think I look at it as a as a time stamp of who I was in that moment. Mm. And again, extending myself some grace that I will learn by making mistakes in the same way that I learned by making mistakes in math. And that if somebody, anybody is going to look at some of the work that I'm doing, but ignore the intention under which I do it, knowing that I am trying to make the mathematical sciences a place that is more welcoming, where people of color feel like they belong. If that is not framed in that way, like this is why I'm doing it. That is exactly why I'm doing it. And if somebody takes that out of context and and spins it in any which way, I think that's something about them and not about me. And if they're going to use that against me, then there's nothing I can do because you know what? They would use anything against me. They would use anything against me. And so I, as much as I worry, I continue to think about it that way. Like does the good outweigh, does the good to the community outweigh the potential negative impact on me. And I ask myself that every time before I log on to that Zoom to have our podcast. And the answer has continued to be yes. The benefit outweighs any negative thing that might come to me. And the community to me is much more important. Especially in this time we're in where math is just being, you know, put on trial. That's right. For ridiculous reasons. And we're not going to get into that, you know. If you want to know what's going on with math, I mean, all you got to do is look at what's going on in Florida and, you know, you'll get an idea and, and many other red states, but mm-hmm. that's, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, and before I before I move on to the lightning round and we start to close things out, I love the double entendre. I don't know if people peep that. Come on. Real complex. Never discreet. Come on now. That's like, right. That's right. <laughs> So for my non-math folks, that probably went over your head. Like, that's clear double entendre right there. So, yeah, I had to get proud for that. But, listen, we got to get into this lightning round because we've been talking for about an hour, which has been great. Uh, (laughs) But but we want to get people to know a little bit more about you, um, a little bit outside the math space. 
Uh, but before we do that, I have to ask to start things off. What's your favorite math topic to either teach or learn? For me, I think it's the general idea of proofwriting, how you build a logical argument that builds on itself to get to the desired outcome as mm -hmm. a statement that is nothing but just truth. And that just like, just thinking about it, I'm like, this is amazing. It's amazing that we can actually prove that something is true. There is no this like, without a shadow of a doubt, you know, it's like, no, it is true. And it's gonna be true regardless of anywhere we are in the world. Um, and so proof writing for me is like the bread and butter of what I love. All right. Uh, least favorite math subject to teach or learn. Oh my God, calculus three. This yeah. multivariable calculus stuff and Greens and Stokes, there's a reason why I did not become an analyst. I'm sorry, Rebecca. You know, I mentioned Rebecca who got me into graduate school. She's an analyst, but I was like, this is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, are you a music lover? I am. Okay. So you're walking into a lecture hall with all your students. What's going to be your walk-in song? Okay. So I had I, I was thinking about this and I think Rihanna's work. I'm like, we are here to work, 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 work. You know, <laughs> don't 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 judge me on my singing abilities, but like I was like, yeah, we're here to do some work. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, you gotta come with that energy for sure. Um, if you could invite three influential figures, dead or alive, to dinner, who would they be? Oh my God, Michelle Obama, for sure. Number one, I would love to meet her. Um, I would throw in Ruth Gonzalez in there because I want to know more about her life story to mathematics. And then my girl, Selena, because I would love to know what other songs she had in the bank before she was mm. taken from us. Wow. And that's that's a powerful three right there for dinner. Listen, Dr. Pamela, thank you so much. You are welcome. On the podcast and of course before i let you go i gotta give you a chance to let um to tell viewers how to connect with you on social media um if you have your website information you can share that as well because people need to learn the work that you're doing sounds good yeah so you can hit me up on twitter i'm at dpe harris and then my website is pamelaeharris.com you can also check out the work that we do with Latisums. So L-A-T for Latinx, H-I-S for Hispanic, M-S for mathematicalsciences.org. So L-A-T-H-I-S-M-S dot O-R-G. All right, y'all. And all the information will be in the episode notes once this episode is released. Uh, Dr. Pamela Harris, thank you so much for coming on. And we definitely have to do this again. Anytime. Sounds good. Thanks, right. everyone. All right. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. So we're about to end another fantastic episode of Radical Math Talk. And as always, I'm wishing you all a good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, y'all. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, 
you can visit our website at identity talk for numeral four educators.com i'll say it one more time identity talk for educators.com thank you and have a great day